Hello, I'm Emily Bingham. I am a widow, a grief coach, and certified grief educator. I lost my husband, Ian, to cancer in March of 2019, so it will be four years at the end of this March. I'm sorry. And as a way to help me heal and rewrite the narrative on my loss, I started sharing my story to help others. And it kind of snowballed into a whole movement around normalizing grief. And I launched a coaching business shortly thereafter and grown a community just around finding the joy in grief, finding meaning, learning to live fully ultimately in the face of death. And how can we use the experience of loss to really be so appreciative of everything that we have here in the now? So I started my business called Move Through. It originally was, you know, a little, it was a workout. It was an intention-based workout that I started at my local spin studio where I was teaching. And I just invited people to come, anyone who had experienced a loss. We turned down the lights, we turned up some moody music, and we, I kind of just invited them to think about their loved one, think about their loss and to feel whatever was coming up for them. <laughs> and from there, it just kind of took off. And now it's like an online coaching business. I have a lot of different programs ranging from helping widows who want to get back into the dating world to helping others turn their pain into purpose. And yeah, it's it's been a journey ever since. It's always amazing to hear the stories of what happens after, right? Because I think that's what most people are wondering, like what happens now? Would you mind talking a little bit more about what happened with your husband? I guess the circumstances around that. And then, you know, what was life back in 2019 for you? Definitely. So um, Ian and I were college sweethearts and we dated all through college. And then after we graduated, we took some time off. So in the time apart, I was in grad graduate school, and he was actually in Beijing, China, starting out his career in hotel management. We kept in touch as friends. But when he was 23, I believe, he went to the hospital because he wasn't able to see, and this was in China. And the doctors there discovered that he had a tumor in his eye. And wow. so that was shocking news to everyone that it was cancer. And so he immediately flew back to the United States. I reconnected with him there and we kind of saw a treatment plan for him here. Ironically, the news of his tumor and cancer brought us back together because for anyone who's experienced a cancer diagnosis, I think it just really reminds you of your own mortality and it kind of invited us to really focus on what was important in life, which was less about pursuing our own careers and really focusing on, wow, we really love each other and let's do this. The time is now. So as we pursued treatment here in the States, we decided to get back together. We felt like his cancer was really under control. Like it was just a tumor. We're going to be fine. We're going to treat it. And so we went on to get married, start a young family. And by the time we were 20, so I think 23, it was like seven, five years later is when his, his cancer metastasized. And, and that kind of threw us into a whole new different journey because it wasn't just, Oh, one tumor. It was tumors everywhere. And Ian's life is on the line. And that's kind of where my grief journey really began is in this phase of anticipatory grief, which is where you 
the future is really unknown. You're kind of living in limbo. It's really hard to plan anything because you don't know if your person's going to be alive one month, two months, one year out. And so you're just kind of living day by day and just hoping for the best. And so we fought cancer aggressively for 15 months. And then luckily, Ian had the intuition to say, hey, I want to make it back to my hometown of Hawaii, which, yeah, because he, he was really sick at that point, but he, I think he wanted to return home. And we went there thinking, all right, we'll go back and we'll pursue more treatments. But that never ended up happening because once we got to Hawaii, he ended up checking into hospice because his pain just got so bad. And he was about a month in hospice and then he, he passed away really peacefully. We all got to say our goodbyes. We had a beautiful celebration of life for him. Big paddle out. He was a surfer. So tons of people there just celebrating his life. But honestly, in the aftermath of everything back in 2019, I was completely numb and in shock. And I think that's a misconception around anticipated loss is that you think you're going to be ready for it because it's been coming. It's like, how, how can I you know, I I should have been ready for this. But in reality, you're so focused on keeping your person alive. And I know that I was in complete denial of the fact that he would actually pass away. So I felt really numb. I felt really disconnected. It didn't feel like anything in my life was real. The day he died, I don't even know if I cried. Like I was just, I, I literally said my goodbyes and then we went and poured cereal for my kids. Like it was just so bizarre <laughs> because life keeps going and your life ends. And so it took a solid three to six months for the shock to wear off. And when I got back to Colorado, I think is really when my reality hit me more. And that was when, you know, credit cards started being canceled. Bills started coming in all of the logistics of loss, like going to the social security administration to get my survivor spouse benefits. And then reading in my application, like marriage ended by death, like just seeing that. And it was like, Oh my gosh, like this reality is just hitting me so hard. And I wasn't hit with sadness again. I was hit with a lot of anger, just so angry that I had to be raising two kids alone, that cancer robbed us of the, our future together of, you know, you lose so much more than just your person. You lose your identity. You lose those shared dreams. I lost my partner, my kid's father. And so it was a really, really hard time. And luckily I had a support system where I, I communicated to my mom and dad, they live out here with me in Colorado. And I just said, look, like I am incapable of taking care of my kids right now. Like, I'm sorry. And and that was hard because my my dad especially pushed back. I think he's of the generation of suck it up. You got to move on. You got to show up for your kids. They already lost their dad. And I was like, I can't. Like, I really held that boundary and I was just like, I cannot do it. And I I really focused on that time to heal, to make space for grief. I worked out a ton. That was the way, that was a way for me to cope with my emotions because I felt I would go to therapy and I would talk about my loss. I would process what was coming up, but I could just still feel this energy physically within me and working out is what gave me that physical release of emotion. So yeah, that's kind of like what the the picture was like in kind of early grief, just a lot of anger, lots of anxiety and overwhelm. And thank God that I had a support system to to keep my kids alive because I was barely, you know, surviving for myself. Yeah. 
I think that might have been one of the most important things in your life to admit to yourself and to your parents, like, I can't do this. Because if you didn't, the repercussions probably would have been pretty significant to your kids. I think a lot of people can draw something from that where, you know, we have to we have to admit to ourselves sometimes that we're not good. We're like, <laughs> this is not like this is a little bit more than I can handle right now. Yes. And then reach out and to somebody, whether it's a, you know, a licensed professional or whether it's somebody within that circle that you love and trust, like we, that's part of this process, no matter who you are and who you lost. Like if, you know, if you're experiencing that, you know, having that moment, it's important. Yeah, absolutely. I think we've been taught, we're raised in a generation of like independence and strength and do it yourself. And I think our society prides itself on those values and principles. And I think in grief, you almost have to rewire your brain in a way and recognize that vulnerability is courage. Crying is a sign of strength, right? Like all of actions and behaviors that we've been, that we've been taught are weak, right? Or make us less powerful in some way are actually where we kind of need to go. And I, a lot of the work that I do with my clients is like helping them understand, like I hear them come in and say, what's wrong with me? Or, you know, I had a really good day. And it's like, well, in grief, there is no such thing as like good or bad because your feelings are all relevant. And it would make sense that you would be feeling angry or sad or, Anxious or guilty, right? Yeah. Like you're not going to be like running in sunshine and rainbows right after your person dies. And that's, that's yeah. okay. <laughs> yeah. And you're supposed to be confused. Like it, it, right? ex- ex- accepting, accepting the whole process is probably one of the most difficult parts of the grieving process. For me, it was like once I understood that, like, there's not much I can do to control this whole process. Like this is a journey that I'm going to take and I'm on the boat ride. Not really. I can't jump off. That's it's just we're going to go and I'm going to try to, you know, you could try to steer it a little bit, but you're on that ride. You have to accept that you're on that ride. And then you have to understand that forever long that ride is. I mean, you know, I, I, I don't really think we ever end this grieving process. It's sort of just, you know, it's a lot. Of, it gets a lot easier to live with it, but we have to understand and a phrase that I sort of like is like love the darker parts of ourselves, which is like something that is sort of what we're talking about, which is, you know, okay, you have a bad week or a bad month or a bad couple of days. Like that's okay. It's part of the process. Like, you know, it's not about going on TikTok or Instagram and being like, you could be happy all the time. It's like, no, 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 <laughs> that's not, that's not realistic. That's, that's not being human. You know, right, exactly. we have to, be able to forgive ourselves of like for feeling human, (laughs) which is very difficult right now. Well, and I think that's what separates those who turn their pain into purpose, find meaning and can really thrive in the face of death is, is when you accept that suffering is a part of the human experience and that all of your emotions are relevant. We, when, when you can release the charge around them being good or bad and just see that feelings are fluid, that the darker notes and tones actually amplify the lighter ones. Yeah. And you actually live 
within the full range of the human experience as opposed to just one end, which is happiness, joy, success, love, delight, glee, right? Which is where we've been taught to live. We yeah. haven't been taught how to live in the in the in the dark. Right. Yeah, I was I was actually having this conversation last night with a friend of mine who is going through some struggles and for me since my loss, like the the joys feel extra high and the downs feel extra low. But mm-hmm. you know, we can't you know that's what being being human is having this full range, full spectrum of emotions. Like joy wouldn't feel amazing if you felt it all the time. Like that's right. just it would feel boring or it wouldn't yeah. even register. Like we need it's to like having Christmas every day. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> like and if we can come to understand that process that we're all human and that we all have these peaks and valleys, like there's something beautiful and like this shared felt feeling of love, even if you aren't surrounding yourself with people, like just that understanding that this is everybody. Nobody has joy every day. Like that's just, that's just not how the world works. That's not what being human is. Push past social media. Yeah. (laughs) No, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think it's really, really hard for people to believe that sometimes. Like I work with clients like over the course of a year and they're still like, I just don't know why I'm still like so sad. And I'm just like, it's okay. It makes sense. Sadness will always exist to a degree. It's always going to be sad that Ian passed away from cancer when he was 32 and he didn't get to raise his kids and all the things. Right. And at the same time, I think holding duality in grief is really key. So it's always a both and. So it will always be sad. And how can I find meaning? How can I find joy alongside this experience, right? Like we get to have both. Another, you know, I see where a lot of people get stuck is when they try to choose one or the other. It's like, I need to only be in my grief. I need to only be in my darkness and despair. And it's recognizing that you get to hold both. We get to have a lot of different conflicting emotions and that we kind of oscillate between the two of them. Yeah. The two spectrums. It's like accepting the crazy, the chaos of what this journey is. You know, it's surrendering yourself in a way it's giving up control. I mean, there, there is control. Like we can control, you know, using the tools that we have to not feel depressed all the time. You know, there's, there's things that we could do, obviously working out or, whatever is your tool in your tool belt, but there is a a big sense of surrendering to like, you're never going to find out why. Like there's no logic to somebody's who you love, who died in, you know, early or, you know, whatever, you know, because what is early? Like what is, yeah, that's a whole, (laughs) like we can go down that philosophical hole, but like, that, you know, I think for me, it was like I, I was much more logic driven before my mother passed. And when when she passed, it, it I was like trying to make sense of it. You know, you try to you try to put it in this framework where it's like A plus B equals C. Like, but but this doesn't make sense. This doesn't compute. Like, so you sort of have to you have to just at a certain point, you have to be like, well, this is not going to make logical sense. Like this is this is the way this is the way it is, this is life, this is the human experience, like we just lose people. And, and life goes on. And that's super weird. I and mean, you mentioned that, like, 
life just goes on. Like you just, your life sort of got destroyed, but like the mail still gets delivered. The stock market's still open. People are driving to work. Like all these things still happen. And it's such a weird feeling, right? Like that's such a weird feeling when that has happened to you, but nothing has changed outside of that world. And you're like, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah, there's a couple of things I want to comment on here. Yeah, it can feel really victimizing when the rest of the world goes on and you're the only one kind of processing and your whole world has completely fallen apart, right? And on and, and yet you're you're forced to engage with the outside world. It's like we get back to it so quickly. Like bereavement periods at work are so short. And so it can you can feel very isolated because it's like nobody – here you are on the surface showing up looking fine. You're like, I'm okay. Like I just had this massive loss in my life. But here I am like – pouring my kids cereal, going to work, whatever it is. And yeah, on the inside, it's like your heart is completely broken. And because we don't talk about loss in our society, you do feel like a victim. You're like, how am I the only 32 year old widow? How am I? I don't know how you old are, but like, how did my mom like already pass away? Like I, you, you feel like you're the only one out there and it takes, and and I remember going through the motions of just like, why me? Like, like you said, like trying to make sense of it. We're such meaning making machines and we want to have a reason. Like that's how our brain processes. It's like, there's got to be some sort of an A plus B equals C logic to this. And so two things there, I think one is finding communities that where others have experienced a loss can make you feel so much less alone. I know that really helped me break out of my victim mindset and recognize, oh my gosh, actually other young men die. There are other widowed moms out there in my situation, right? And that made me feel less alone. And as you start to see that you aren't the only one in this, you also, it, it also helps you let go of the need for a reason, right? Because you start to see, wow, like loss is literally everywhere. Death is a part of life. There actually is no reason behind death. Death just happens and you'll never be satisfied with the why. So it, it invites you to like radically, I don't know, just like accept the randomness of life in general and surrender to so much that's outside of your control, which is such a massive ask for us as human beings to do, who've lived in this like little bubble of safety and comfort our entire lives with the promise that we're going to make it to a hundred years old. Like my daughter came home from school one day and it was like, it was a little worksheet where it's like, what I'm going to be like when I'm a hundred. And I was like, that's BS, Izzy. <laughs> like I didn't say that, but I was like, you don't know if you're going to make it to a hundred. We're really lucky if you make it to a hundred, but yeah. not everybody does. And kind of like, how do we create safety? How do I create safety for her? Knowing what I know now that life is unpredictable and tomorrow isn't guaranteed. And so how do we make the most of today? But it's like, and that's why where the, why so much post-traumatic growth occurs after a loss is because in order for you to integrate what's happened to you, you almost have to reframe the entire way that you think about the world. Yeah. And it's it's a journey in itself. That's why I believe this is lifelong. New things come up all the time. Yeah. I, it, it's sort of super unfortunate that <laughs> we can't do this before, right? Like, that's how I think. I'm like, I've, yeah. I've had so much 
growth personally in this last two years. And I'm like, well, where was this before? Like, why did it take the most important person in my life to die for me to become a better person? Like, to become, like, like to, to shatter that framework. And it's such a fascinating concept to me that it, like, that it takes that. And, and then it, I start to have these conversations or questions about where did we lose that in humanity? Like, yeah. because I feel like there was a point where death was a part of, like, our life. And then either we got so comfortable and so, like, it, it's been so removed yeah. from society. So we've lost it somewhere along the way. And it's like, that used to not be the case, I feel like, because people used to die all the time. <laughs> like, that, yeah, people die all the time, but, like, people were really dying all the time. And, like, now it's, like, a little bit easier to live. And that caused something to lose, like, we lost that something. And I feel like we need to, it'd be, it'd behoove us to get that back as a society because it would help us heal. I agree. And there's actually books on this. And I've read, I, I, I don't remember where I heard this. It's either from Hope Edelman. She does a book on the after grief. I'm looking at my bookshelf right now. And then, and maybe it was a podcast that I listened to, but one of the main reasons why death has been eradicated from the conversation is because of the wars. I think they were talking about how with World War One, I, I believe, the whole phrase, keep calm, carry on, came from England. And it's because everyone was dying and they still needed people to, you know, show their patriotism and fight for the country. And so it was kind of like, let's like push aside all of this, the death and the loss and the grief that's happening so that we can focus on the task ahead. And that I think slowly, and, and I, I don't have my facts entirely correct here, right? So like, don't take these verbatim, but that was one of the reasons like in a historical context, and that's happened time and time again, through different wars, through different tragedies, where it's like, we need to focus, keep going, carry on. And and yeah, I think it's slowly kind of been like, we don't want to deal with the unpleasantries because we just need to get back to life. That's such a Western value of ours is like, keep going, you know, productivity. We don't have time to, to sit in the mess. And I agree. I think we need to be having these conversations because I do think that they they absolutely change the way that we, we live, the way that we relate to one another. And so hopefully that's what we're doing now by having these conversations here is like, you know, it's not a matter of if it's a matter of when every single person you love will die. If you haven't experienced grief, you will. And grief is a part of life in so many other ways, too. It's a part of heartbreak and breakup and job loss and the pandemic. We all experienced grief. So the more that we can bring awareness to it, like we can all then recognize that we're not alone. We can support one another by just being a little bit more compassionate and understanding. So yeah, I totally agree. I would like to, you know, step back to before Ian passed. What was that time like the last, you know, 12 months before? Like what, what were the, those, you know, what, what was life like? What, how did that work because I know there's a lot of people out there whose significant others have been diagnosed like you know my mom died of cancer there's a ton of stories and a lot of people they haven't lost somebody they're like they're it's in the middle of the fight and what was that fight like for you guys as a family as a young family like for me it's like you can once again you can never prepare yourself for the actual loss like you could try to pretend like you're preparing yourself but it, you can't actually prepare yourself yeah. it doesn't 
it doesn't work like that. Yeah. But what was that like? I know this is not going to be easy, but what what was that mindset like and, and those experiences like? Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad you asked this because I, I don't think there's a lot of support for caregivers. And like, I didn't even know that the term anticipatory grief existed until after my husband passed away. So there is a very real conversation needed around this as well. So for us, there's so much here. I would say there was a lot of duality in that time. Like, I think because we were not sure if Ian would survive, there was the threat of death, the threat of our mortality that almost amplified the time that we had together. So our motto was kind of hope for the best and prepare for the worst. So we did, we got our paperwork in order. We got all the estate stuff lined up. We, we did what we needed to do in the event that Ian might pass away. And that was a really hard conversation to have with Ian because when I asked him, you know, to write letters to the kids, which he never did and that's okay. Um, but like we, but even to get like our estates in, in order, he felt like it was us giving up on him. And so that was a really hard line to kind of dance with to in order to to say, hey, we're not giving up. Like we're still hoping, we're still fighting. And like we have to be prepared because we just don't know. And that was hard too because the medical system didn't really, they weren't really that honest with us. I think they instilled a lot of hope that we had a better chance than we actually did. And I didn't hear from a doctor that Ian was actually dying until one month before he actually passed away. And that's, I'm still working through some of the anger around towards the medical system for that because it would have been nice to have had some real information earlier on. We, we tried to be as mindful and present as possible and not speculate too far into the future, you know, being like, well, if this treatment doesn't work, then this or that, right? Because all of that, what I, what I always say to people dealing with anticipatory grief is like, bring the timeline closer, bring it to the now, because all of the fear and the anxiety that we create is this, is due to uncertainty. And if you keep projecting further and further out, it just becomes more uncertain. So focus on what you know in the now, right? We also luckily were able to take some really amazing trips together. Like we went on a trip to Spain and Italy, just the two of us between one of his treatments, because again, hope for the best or for the worst, we wanted to make those final memories together. And I'm so grateful that we were able to have that. Like I had the luxury of 15 months with him. Some people don't get that. And so I'm so grateful for that time. But yeah, I think in general, it was really just having to hold that, that duality of, of hoping for the best, preparing for the worst. Being a caretaker was really hard, especially with two young kids. I was really angry that we had that our time together as a young family, I, you know, I gave birth to my son knowing that Ian had to go get brain tumors removed like a week later. And so it was just like, what, what the fuck, you know, and just feeling the grief of the loss of our, the, the normalcy of our life that we had to be, you know, spending time in hospitals and fighting cancer versus just running around, like rolling around in the grass with our kids and being silly. Like that was such a loss already that we were having to deal with. And yeah. And having to 
you know, there was a loss of identity for Ian and for me because our roles were kind of reversed. Like I was then the one taking care of him, taking care of two kids. I definitely asked for a lot of help at that time. We had a lot of really scary hospital scares, you know, Ian waking up really like paralyzed one morning and having to rush to the hospital for emergency spinal surgery. It was, it was an intense period of time. And honestly, I've really had to go back to process that time because I was in survival mode. I wasn't processing anything. My my nervous system was just in constant fight or flight. And so a lot of the work I've been doing in therapy now is really around the time in hospice, particularly because I like wasn't even present for the death. I dissociated. I There's parts of me that are angry at myself, but I, I also know that there's it, that's, it was just my body trying to protect me. I couldn't have done done it any differently. A lot of these lessons we learn in hindsight. And when we feel guilty or have regrets, we have to remember that, that at the time we didn't know any better. Yeah. Forgiving ourselves is such a, it's amazing how hard it is to not beat ourselves up about stuff that we hindsight, you know, obviously the cliche hindsight's always 2020. It's, Mm -hmm. it's, it's impossible. Like you were put in an impossible situation. Like that's, that's, that's what happens. Like, how do you, go back and you know it's amazing how much we can take without really being like we, it, it's amazing how much our body like how how we can protect ourselves through these yeah. moments and like you were put in an impossible situation and you live through it and just processing that how long it will take or how long it takes or how long it will take like that's something that I, I appreciate you sharing because I think there's a lot of people who want to beat themselves up and they want to be angry at themselves for what they didn't do or you know even the circumstance a, a lot of it's a lot of times that, that's part that's like one of the bigger parts of grief right is that like i should have done x y and z i could have done x y and z and it's like that's natural to feel that way but oh it's brutal it is probably one of the most brutal parts of grief is going is forgiving yourself whatever it is, even it like, even if like, what, like the shoulda, woulda, coulda stuff, that's been the most difficult part for me where it's like, anytime I entertain those thoughts, it's an immediate downward spot. I'm like, I gotta, I gotta take a second. That's like, that's really the brutal stuff right. to me. Yeah. So, I, I mean, it's, you're put in an impossible situation. It's, it's guilt, crazy. Guilt and grief go hand in hand. And in my programs, we work on guilt a lot because like you said, it is so common. And it's just when somebody leaves you before you're ready, you of course are going to have regret. Like there's no way around it because you weren't anticipating them dying. And so I actually didn't have quite as much guilt and regret because I had 15 months to really use that time intentionally. And yes, I was in denial of a part of it, but I was also, I was also realistic. And so I, I I did as much as I could that was within my power, but a lot of us don't have that luxury. So yeah, when guilt arises, again, I think our society is so quick to say, that's irrational. You know, you didn't do anything wrong. You, you know, it's fine. Like kind of just like get over it. And that guilt is valid. It's another way that our brain is really trying to process how this happened, trying to kind of make meaning, trying to understand like what role we played in everything. And so I always tell my clients, like, how can you hold that 
guilt, these regrets, all the would haves, the could have, should haves, like love them, embrace them, accept them. They're not make them wrong, right? Because then we shut on ourselves and we create even more suffering. And it's like, but acknowledge them. They're there. And like, how do I make peace with them? How do I challenge them? How do I get curious about them? And maybe find closure in other ways. Like I can't change the way that I can't change the past, but I can change the way that I move forward. So if I can extract the lesson here, maybe like I know a lot of people have regrets around they they were so busy with work and they didn't spend time with their person. And, and so, okay, so how can we how can I forgive myself and then change the way that I move forward? What's the lesson there about how do I want to spend my time now and live my life in a way where my loved one would be proud? And so it's less about like living in the past and shifting the focus to like, what can we do now that's within our power to heal this part of ourselves? And, and, you know, guilt is one of those things that continues to arise. It's like, again, these feelings are fluid. They come and they go. And it's like, if a guilty thought comes up years later, it's like, okay, I see you. I feel you. <laughs> like, I, I, I'm not, but I'm not going to let you like control me. Right. I'm not going to live in that. And I think that's when we become our own healers is when we can become like the observer of our experience. And you recognize that you're not in, you're not like living in the feeling, but it's just, you, you, you can see yourself in it. And it's like, and like you kind of said, you reminded me of this earlier, like what, when you're in it, you don't really know what is going on and you kind of beat yourself up for the choices that you made or the way that, or what you felt or whatever it may be. But if you can take a step back and like see yourself in this situation of being caretaker of watching your mom or your husband die right in front of you, it's like, whoa. Like that's where you can really invite in a lot of grace and forgiveness because you see what's actually happening yeah. in it. I think one of my like favorite, I don't know if it's like a meditative exercise, but the idea of, you know, sitting down and, and like letting your emotions pass, like closing your eyes and sort of like watching your emotions pass through your hands in like water. Right? Like you can't, mm. you don't actually, you can't hold on to water. It's just going to pass through your fingers. And that's sort of how we have to look at these emotions. These emotions yeah. don't, we are not our emotions. They're just things that pass through us. And the more that we can right. surrender to the fact that this is anger, this is guilt. Like it isn't me. It's just, this is passing through me right now. And that's okay. Yeah. Like that is, that's something that's helped me a lot. Like understanding yeah. that framework, that concept. Totally. I agree. And that's, that's my, my whole, the first course that I created was move through grief. And it's literally how to embrace grief by owning, validating, feeling your emotions, and then kind of reframing the narrative on your emotions. Like the sadness that you feel is the love for your person, right? Yeah. It's all, it's all related. Like anxiety is one I really like to talk about because anxiety gets such a bad rep and we numb out with anti, you know, with meds and whatever. And everyone, you know, that's very personal conversation and there is no right or wrong on that. But like it, to me, anxiety is your 
that's your body's natural alarm system. That's like, it's just saying, Hey, wake up, pay attention. There's something outside of me that I'm perceiving as a threat. There's something within me that needs some love and attention, right? Triggers. I think triggers get another really bad rep, but that triggers are your pathway to more healing. When you get triggered and you feel activated, it's, it's like, that's another invitation to say, okay, well, to get curious and say, what is this about? Like, what do I need to process here? What do I need to heal? And so our emotions are wisdom, they're information, and not only to our own healing, but just in creating your new normal moving forward. I think, I know for me, I had a massive loss of identity and I was like, I don't even know who I am. I don't know what I want. And being able to kind of feel into those decisions of like, (laughs) what's my next step, right? Was really supportive for me. Yeah, it's been a whole another whole new paradigm shift in way of doing life is is getting to learn to trust my emotions and really use that as my inner compass as opposed to just following all of the different rules of society. Because according to for you and for me, like we're living a life of tragedy. Yeah. And I was like, all right, well, how do I how do I let go of that and like rewrite that narrative by tapping into my own truth? Yeah. What I really like, I love the, what you're saying about, you know, all the learning that you get when you, like, these things are, not the anxiety, it's like, the triggers, it's opportunities to learn. And I forgot where I heard this, and I'm going to butcher this, so apologies to wherever I heard this from. But essentially, when we can voluntarily step to the edge of the void inside of us, that's when we can learn the most. And... Unfortunately, like these losses give us that opportunity more so than otherwise. And it's like when you can step to that inner edge within you and look out into the darkness and to that abyss of, I guess, what we consider societal society considers negative emotions or that that real darkness in, inside of us. That's that's the learning. We we don't learn as much when we're feeling happy all the time. Like that's you don't really you, you we tend to learn more out of the suffering, out of the darkness. So it's like, if you can make, it's it's just the constant, that conscious shift of like, let's use this as a way to learn more, to, to grow. It, it, it's very powerful. And like, it's, it, I guess it comes down to framing. It comes down to like practice, like what you're teaching. Like it, it's an, it's a new education I guess I, I don't know yeah, framework totally... education. Like I, there's a lot of words that you can use. <laughs> I just, you know, that's, that's what's so interesting about I this whole space a, is that it's like, it's, it's a total a great... paradigm shift yeah, and you're yeah. totally speaking my language. I think again, we live in a pain avoidance society too. We try to numb the pain. We're addicted to dopamine. We're addicted to our phones to hits that make us feel happy. And it's like when you can lean into discomfort and find the edge, like you were saying, you break through to a new level of growth. And I totally get it. I'm freaking obsessed with it. Like I like seek uncomfortable situations. I'm running a marathon for the first time this year because I want to see how far I can push myself. Like there's so much growth when like I like when you lean into discomfort and it's only uncomfortable because it's new it's uncertain right and so if you can release the judgment around the discomfort and again not not charge it as bad it's just hard but hard isn't bad they call it growing pains for a reason right like pain is part of the process it's that we create the suffering by 
creating a story around the pain or the darkness or whatever it may be. And something that I've been playing with is like, yes, loss leaves you in, in a void, right? Between the life that was and the life that you're creating. And there's also a void that's created within you as well, right? This sense of emptiness. But what I'm now playing with is that life itself is a big math. It's just a big void, right? Like we're always some, we're in some void business-wise. Like I hit one milestone, great, awesome. And then the next one, I want more clients enrolled, right? And so then the distance between A to B is the void. And, And if you... If you're always focused on like that next thing, we create so much suffering for ourselves as opposed yeah. to just being like, I'm, I'm already doing it. I'm already here. And that can be hard to see in the wake of massive loss. But I think we get, we create a lot of suffering for ourselves when it's like, oh my gosh, I have to build a whole new normal, a whole new life. If only I could just feel normal. If I, if only I could just be done with grief. And it's like, it just doesn't work that way. No, I think one of, one of the things that I talk about a lot with business that I think applies here is when we when we think about what we want to do and we make huge goals and we're just like i want to get to the huge goal it's like we never succeed because we'll never we have to take small steps in whatever we do small steps lead to big things and that's that's that applies throughout life it doesn't apply just to you know business or mental health or social like situations that's that applies to everything we need to we need to Baby steps everywhere because there's a lot of things that overwhelm us, especially when you're dealing with grief and loss. Like, it's that small, small wins, small wins. Get like you have that one thing that makes you smile a day. Congratulations, you're doing better well, than most. <laughs> like, exactly, and and in the example of grief and in business and in life, right? It's like if you're always focused on the what's next, then you you miss the appreciation for what already is, and like, I guess for me in terms of, I, I think in grief, like we focus on all of the ways that are in, in which our life is lacking, right? It's like, I don't have a husband. I don't have that life that we, that we used to share together and it can, and, and you just start to focus on, and that's part of the rebuilding process, right? But it's like, but how can I tap into gratitude, which can feel like such a stretch. I get it in the wake of loss, but like literally that's what helped me move forward after my husband's death. Like I was like, like seeing him die in front of me and fight so hard for his life. I was like, what a privilege it is to be here. And yes, this is hard. This isn't the future, the life that I wanted, but how can I find gratitude in the fact that I am here and didn't have a choice, but I do. And so I'm going to do my damn best to try to make the most of it. Like it's, I think gratitude it's so hard and I think it's so necessary. And I know for me in the early, early months of grief, early years, just being able to like hold my kid's hand and be like, I get to do this. Like I hate being a solo parent and I get to do this. Like that gave me a lot of motivation to keep going. Yeah. I mean, it's such a weird dichotomy, (laughs) such a fascinating dichotomy. There's just so many fascinating things about this whole space, but one of the things that I wanted to talk about, which I think is also one of the toughest parts about loss is, especially when you lose somebody early, is the times that hit me the hardest is when I think about all the things that they will miss. Like, I think that's one of the toughest parts. It's like, even 
as time goes by, like, I'll have things and I'm like, ugh, like, that inside of me sort of, like, breaks a little bit again, being like, they won't be able to see that. They, I can't share that with them. What do you think is so difficult about that specifically, that, like, the missed things, the, the plans that won't be, the, it's like this, this, fu- the, what do you mentioned, the future that doesn't exist anymore. Right, right. I don't so, know about you, but, like, that's, that always still hits me the hardest out of everything. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Death, a loss like this robs you of possibility of what could be with your person. And we, again, as human beings, because we like to create meaning, we create a future story, right? Like I had a future story of Ian and I growing old together. You had a future story of your mom seeing you get married and, you know, hit all those milestones. We all do that. And death robs us of that. And so some things that have supported me is like, A, you have to grieve that. You have to grieve the future story because it's a secondary loss. It's an invisible one. But yeah, that pain that you feel is valid. It's real. It's true. So we have to allow ourselves to feel it. And something that's helped me alchemize that is to, again, going back to the earlier conversation we had around death and that that future was never mine to begin with. It was never promised. It was never guaranteed. And yeah, and so seeing how like just that belief, the societal belief that we grow old together, that we get to grow old together and that that's not really a privilege, that's a guarantee, rewriting that narrative and recognizing like, I don't, I don't know. Like, and it's so interesting in my new relationship with my partner now, like I haven't created a future story. I feel so much more just present and engaged. Like, yeah, we're making short-term plans, but do I see us growing old together. Like I, I don't even really envision that. Like I just, it's been such a dramatic change for me, but it absolutely. Yeah. Like I think of Ian missing out. It's, it's really more for my kids. I yeah. think where I feel that, that they don't, that he doesn't get to be there for, for that part. And, and another thing I want to bring up for any of our listeners here is often we tend to be like, like you feel sad for the person who died, but they're dead. So, yeah, yeah. So we you have feel to sad bring, for the other. Yeah. Right. But it's like, but that that's where we get stuck in grief sometimes is because we're we're feeling so sorry that they're missing out. But it's really like grief is for the living. Grief is for our loss. We have to bring it back and be like, I feel so sad that he doesn't get to. I'm angry that he's gonna miss my daughter's wedding, right? He's not gonna walk her down the aisle. So that's a empowering shift, I think, for people. But yeah, the loss of the future story is so real. And it's a hard one. Two last things that I'd love to cover is one revolving your kids. How old are they now? And what's the what's the most difficult part of, are they still talking about Ian? What do you envision that looking like in terms of like those conversations as they get older and how? Yeah. <laughs> like, I, because I, because right, like I don't have kids. I don't, I haven't lived that story. And I imagine it's quite difficult, especially when they're very young. It is. It is. So, I mean, I think it's every age has its pros and cons. My kids were one and three when Ian passed away. So the pro was that they didn't really understand death, the permanence of death. There was still a lot of magical thinking going on. I think my daughter still has some magical thinking to a degree. They are now five and seven. And so she will often say, you know, I'm going to, I I have a magic wand where I'm going to bring daddy back from the dead. Yeah, that's hard. And, yeah. or I'm going to wish, I'm wishing on a star tonight that daddy will come back. And I try to 
be really real with her. And I say, you know, daddy died. His body stopped working. Very, very literal, factual based. You know, the cancer made his body stop working. His spirit left his body. And, you know, there's still, I try to, I'm trying to teach them about some sort of a spiritual connection with him that we're still connected to him through the love. And there's different ways that we can explore that, right? Like maybe daddy comes to us as a bird or daddy comes to us as a sea turtle. And we kind of play around with those ideas. And I'm always trying to keep his his legacy alive being like, you know, if Izzy's at her ballet performance, I'm like, daddy would be so proud of you, Izzy, right? Like he's still here with us. But I think for people with older children, it gets hard because they do understand the permanence of the loss and the grief is really real. So you're having to help them navigate that grief while navigating your own. And I think it's really hard for us to see our children in pain. So I always invite parents to remember that that pain needs to be witnessed and they need to be able to feel that pain. And the more that you can encourage them to go into their emotions, like the better recognizing how hard that is. My children still haven't got gone into their deep grief. They, I don't think they still know exactly. They don't fully understand the concept of death. Izzy gets it more now because she sees her friends who have dads and we have, we've had nights where we just cry together and I just try to allow her to emote and talk to me about it. When she says she wants to bring daddy back from the dead, I am very real. But I also am like, well, tell me what you want to do with daddy. Like, let's let's talk about it. So I I try to help her get curious about just maybe because that's kind of the grieving of the future story, right, that we talked about. And then my son has no, like, he doesn't really have a recollection of his dad. And that's really sad. He will know Ian through our memories and the pictures. And I try to visit Hawaii once a year to see all of his friends and family to help keep that, that relationship alive for him. Oh, I can't <laughs> even, you know, trying to bring daddy back with the wand just fucks me up just hearing about that. Jesus. Yeah. Yeah when you decided to start dating again, like, what was that like? How long, like, does it ever feel normal? Because I think that's a big leap, right? Like, I think it's like, once again, don't know, but I can imagine that is a huge leap. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So when, when did that start even as an idea of like, you know, yeah, just go, just I, I, I don't, yeah, this whole that. thing, like, I can't, yeah. Yeah. Let's go there. So we probably need like a whole other podcast just on dating. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was yeah. just joking. No, you, you, we probably could. Yeah. It's a long, I mean, I have a whole, I, I created a whole course with a dating and relationship coach because for me, I was like, how, how do I even start? Because I met Ian when I was 18 years old and we just fell in love organically. You know, it was like head over heels, butterflies, the whole works. And then as a widow, I found myself incredibly lonely, like so lonely, like four to six months after Ian died. And I was like, what in the actual fuck, Emily? Because (laughs) how do you want to be like dating now? Like, I was like, your husband just died. So at the time though, I just felt so lonely. I was like spiraling and I just like craved connection, intimacy, just someone to take me out on a date. And Ian had been sick for a long time too. So I just said, well, I'm just going to try it out. And I got on the apps and went out. I actually had a lot of fun with it. It was a real distraction from the grief that I was in. It, it filled the void of, of intimacy and connection. It also just filled the void of 
I don't know, just taking up that physical space alone. And so I found myself in a relationship and it, it was great. It, I was dating from a place of loneliness though. And I was really anxiously attached and just like, I think there was a part of me that just, that thought that, oh, if I can just find someone to fill that role, then everything will be okay. So I got into this relationship. He dumped me via text message right before Christmas. My first Christmas without my husband. Jesus. Really messed up. Yeah. And it just like, woo! The floodgates of grief. Grief upon grief. Like, band-aid upon the wound that I was actually really covering with dating. But I'm, like, so grateful for the experience because it just ripped me open and it, like, forced me to look at all my grief. And I kind of I kind of went in and out of dating over the course of the past four years. I've had to learn how to love in a whole new way. Like, I've really had to ask myself, what does love mean to me now, knowing that someone that I opened my heart to could die, could go away? Uh, how do I access that safety and trust within myself to know that, yeah, like, so that I can securely attach to someone, but also knowing that, yeah, anything could happen. I've had to, like, consciously, I can, like, I have a new partner, David, like, I know consciously, I, I can see the differences between them and, and rationalize, like, this is David and this is Ian, but in my body, I felt a lot of anxiety in dating and opening my heart up to love again, because love loving someone new feels so different. And I've had to learn to lead into that discomfort. I actually broke up with my current partner for a while because I was, the anxiety was so much and I didn't understand it. I thought it was about him not being the right person for me. But when I really got clear on what I was looking for and what I desired in a partner, and that's why I always say like clarity creates confidence. I was able to then reflect more on my own stuff and heal those parts of myself that were pushing away love. Think like my survival patterns that just, because, you know, I'm like, I, I need to be independent, strong, independent, Emily. I can't let anybody in because that's what I had to do after my husband died. And so it's been this like balance of acknowledging like walls that I built, patterns that I have, and just like loving those parts of myself and not making them wrong because they were there to protect me. But then like slowly making peace with the pain to kind of let the wall down and to let new love in. And it's, it's been a lot of processing and therapy, honestly, for me, but I'm in a place now where my heart feels fully open. I mean, we're talking about like really committing to each other. Our kids know each other. My kids love spending time with David. And I think my daughter like loves the idea of having a dad again. And I say, you know, he's never going to replace your real, your biological father. We're always going to have that relationship with him and teaching them that we get to hold duality. One of the hardest parts from dating as a widow, I was like, how the, like, we know as you heal part of the healing part, part of the healing work is integrating your person, carrying them with you. you we don't move on. We don't let go. Right. Yeah. So I was like, how the heck am I supposed to do that? Yeah, yeah, that's, <laughs> it's almost With like... With another uh, man, like, I'm yeah. trying to, like, I, I have, like, my old love, and then I have this new love, and how does this work? And so, learning how to hold place in my heart for two loves, and recognizing that my heart gets to expand, I don't have to choose one or the other, and I have very different relationships with them now, right? Like, nothing can touch what I had with Ian, I have so much love and gratitude for him, and that my my relationship with him continues on in spirit in a very different way. And I have David here in the present and 
it's another total stretch and why we grow again. But I'm teaching my kids that as well. I think there's a really big misconception when you see a widow dating that she's moved on. She's okay. She's good. And it's like, no, no, like we are still grieving. I mean, and very much I was dating in a very wounded way early on and I'm not anymore, but it, it definitely doesn't mean that like the grief is still there. So yeah, anyone, who's, any, any, anyone who says that, anyone who says that has not gone through grief because they're, right. they're just, right. they're just like, Oh, look, window dressing. Yeah. You're like, no, 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 no. It's, is, it is hard though. Like there, you know, I'm very act- active on social media talking about my story of loss and I have to be, David and I have a lot of conversations. Like I don't want him to feel insignificant. I want him to know that I'm fully in it with him and I can still grieve my husband. And that's been an education process. It's taken a lot of open communication. It's taken emotional intelligence on his part. And that's something that I was very clear with myself in knowing that I needed a partner who could understand that and hold that grief for me. And he'll like allow me to heal within our relationship. So I mean, first off, it's great that he understands that. Like, just the understanding is rare nowadays, unfortunately. So that's that's pretty cool. So props to David for understanding. But yes, yeah, so I think it's because my... he has a really great educator. Oh, yeah. There, there you go. <laughs> <Just yeah. joking. laughs> we'll give all the credit to the it's teacher. Full. 